you have your Bibles with you, we're looking at Matthew 26, verse 36 to 46. And in your pew Bibles, that is page 997. 997, and that's Matthew 26, verse 36 to 46. It's a lot of sixes. The passage says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his hands, with his face to the ground, and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he turned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray, so you will not fall in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I wonder if you could help me this morning in a small, simple, straightforward, psychological, sociological experiment. Are you willing to do that? Some of you look really worried now. All I'd like you to do is give somebody your best uh, effort at an expression which involves raising your brows, turning up the corners of your mouths, and lifting your cheeks. If you're struggling with the description, it's called a smile. I wonder if you could just do that to the people around you. Give them your best smile. Okay, how's that? Is that okay? Let, let me tell you, I've been doing a little bit of research, and the science on facial expressions is absolutely fascinating. There are six core facial expressions which absolutely transcend culture, ethnicity, nationality, where you're born in the world. There are six. I wonder if you can guess them. Well, we've done happy. There's sad. There's fearful. There's angry. There's surprised. And there's disgusted. And the amazing thing is, it seems, according to psychological, sociological, physiological research, it seems that these things are instinctive and innate. You don't need to teach them to children. They may get shook by uh, visual feedback, but even babies, young, young babies can recognize faces and pay attention to them. So a lot of research, including research at the University of Plymouth, 
uh, has investigated this. Let's try another one. Can you give somebody your most angry face? How about that one? Try angry. Now, James, you're still smiling. That's a smile, right? Angry is not like this. Try and give someone your angry face. Okay, try, let's try just one more. This should be easy. This might involve opening the mouth, dropping the jaw, raising the eyebrows high. It's a fearful expression. Let's try that. Go for it. Give someone your fearful expression. Okay. Those of you who hate these kind of things, it's over now. You can, you can breathe a sigh of relief. The point is this, that we come to a new series as we approach Easter. We come to the seven faces of Easter. And picked up from Facebook by a Plymouth Herald journalist, Ross got um, an email this week, so watch for the article in the Herald, wanting more from this young female journalist on what's that all about. You've got two new series. One is on the seven faces of Easter, and one is on Amazing Grace, Six Stories of Unconditional Love. Those are our new series. So get the little flyers for them today. We're going to be looking at, in the mornings, the face of anguish, the face of shock, the face of ambition, the face of betrayal, the face of expectancy, the face of suffering, and the face of recognition. Here's a fascinating thing. This is where the mind and the emotion are intimately linked. I've been having conversations with a friend this week about whether it's important to engage the heart or the mind. And of course, the answer is both. But the best gateway to the heart is through the mind. You engage the mind and you engage the heart. And we're told to love God with all of our heart and all of our mind as well as all of our strength. So what we're doing at and looking at into the faces of characters in the Easter story, we're trying to engage our mind that we might engage our heart as we look at these emotional expressions of Easter. And the very first one today, the story that you've heard, the reading that we've had, is sacred ground. It's sacred ground. As we look at the face of anguish, we're talking about the face of Jesus himself. And this is the only time where it's recorded that he falls to his face, not just to his knees, but to his face, face to the ground, the face of anguish for Jesus. William Barclay, a Church of Scotland scholar, wrote this on this passage. He said, The salvation of the world hung in the balance in the Garden of Gethsemane. The salvation of the world hung in the balance in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this passage is sacred ground, and at least at that time, Gethsemane was sacred ground. I was speaking to someone from the 9 o'clock who'd been in Gethsemane. Anyone here today who's been in Gethsemane. Well, then this will resonate in your hearts as you think of the images of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil vat or oil press. And I think that's significant. It's a place, almost certainly a walled garden um, outside Jerusalem, almost certainly a place that Jesus and the disciples were given access to by one of the wealthy followers or disciples or friends of that little group. A place where they'd go to be quiet and a place where they would go to pray. But in this case, oil press is significant. If that's what Gethsemane means, oil press, it meant it was a place where the, uh, the olive fruit was actually crushed in order to produce the olive oil. Many of you use olive oil to dress salads or in 
cooking or even uh, on wounds. Oil has many, many uses. But that this oil press was a place where Jesus is in anguish, there's an interesting link because it's almost as if he must have felt crushed in this place. The, the account that Ross has read for us is mirrored in the other two synoptic gospels. Synoptic means look and sound and seem the same. They seem to be the same. Mark 14, verses 32 to 42 is another account. And in Luke 22, 39 to 46, we get some extra little bits of interesting and helpful information. In Luke 22, verse 43, we read that an angel from heaven came to strengthen Jesus. He could have called for a legion of angels. He's the son of God. But in his humanity and in his moment of need and facing an incredibly hard choice, one angel comes to strengthen him. And Luke tells us something else which captures the depth of anguish in Jesus' soul. He tells us in verse 44 of Luke 22, and remember Luke is a physician, he's a doctor who's taken eyewitness accounts. He writes this, being in anguish, there's the word, like having your heart crushed emotionally. Being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Got any doctors out there? Any nurses out there? Then you'll probably be aware, very aware of a very rare condition called hematohydrosis or hematidrosis, where the capillaries at or near the very sweat glands and sweat ducts under intense emotional pressure, they burst and blood seeps into the sweat. Jesus literally sweat blood. It's medically documented that this happens under intense emotional pressure. In the face of this anguish, he suffers hematidrosis. There's literally blood in his sweat. It's like drops of blood falling to the ground. He sweated as he prayed earnestly. That's what Luke captures. We need a little bit of background to this. And as we look at Matthew 26, the first thing that I'd like to point out is that this follows the Last Supper. We read in verse 30 there, when they'd sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. This Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives, possibly Olivet, called the Mount of Olives because there are many olive groves there, obviously. But before that, they'd been at what we call the Last Supper. So as we read from the same chapter, 26 and verse 27, we read that Jesus took the cup. Remember the word cup. That's very significant. He took the cup. He gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. He's saying that this wine represented his blood of this new covenant. He says, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's made it clear that he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of the enemies who want him dead. The religious zealots who do not believe he's the Messiah, the Christ, the very Son of God. And he warns them that the wine in the cup of the Passover meal now represents his blood, which is going to be poured out at that crucifixion for the sins of the world, for the stuff you and I have got wrong, for the things that you and I have done that God says all human beings do, that are in some way like almost like an act of rebellion. It's just not the way God wants us to be. So this is sacred ground. 
We also know that he's given them a warning, and you can see that in verses 34 to 35 of betrayal. Look at this. He says, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He's not talking to Judas. He's talking to Peter, his closest friend. Peter declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. They all said it, but when we get to the arrest in Gethsemane later, in verse 56, it simply says, and all the disciples deserted him and they fled. Perhaps we can understand it. They didn't want crucifying. They were confused. They were sad. They were lonely. I want to talk about what happens in Gethsemane in three ways. About the fact that the faces to the ground, Jesus, is facing the past. He's facing this incredibly sacred moment in the present. But he's also facing the future. The future of Calvary, of Golgotha, of the crucifixion but a much more wonderful and incredible, a special future beyond that. The kingdom that he's going to drink from that cup again with those disciples in. He faces the past, the present, and the future in Gethsemane. So let's first of all look at the fact that he's facing the past and the agony of the past. He's in anguish at the moment. He's in a sense in agony. He's facing the agony of Good Friday, but he's facing the agony of the past. What type of agony? Past sin and past rebellion. All those times when in heaven, before his incarnation, before he came to earth, before he was born of a virgin, planted by the power of the Holy Spirit as his Father sent him into the world, he had seen with the Father and the Spirit all the rebellion of the people of God who even stoned, tortured, and killed the prophets that he'd sent to call people back to him because he loved them. And like any parent that has seen children wander away and revile their parents, that was agonizing. So the past sin and the past rebellion were there. And actually, he knows that what he's facing right now as he faces the agony of the past is something that has been described in the past as the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath. Let me explain it to you, because in Matthew 26 and verse 39 and 42, Jesus mentions a cup just as he blessed the cup at the Last Supper. He's talking about a very different cup now. Look at verse 39 of our main reading. He says this. He says, he goes a little further, he falls on his face to the ground and he prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Not the cup of the new covenant. He's already spoken about that. He's now in earnest prayer asking, Father in heaven, Abba, we're told in another account in the gospel. If it's possible, May this cup be taken from me. In one of the other accounts, he says, Father, I know that all things are possible for you. If it's possible, take this cup from me. His mother Mary would have told him that the angel Gabriel had said to her, For with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. You're going to have a child conceived by the Holy Spirit within you. She said, how can that be? I'm a virgin. He says, it's the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. For nothing is impossible with God. Jesus is now earnestly asking, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And again in verse 42, he goes away a second time and prays, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now, the prayer he's already taught the disciples, the prayer that we often pray. 
the Lord's Prayer has in it that line, may your will be done, may your kingdom come. Jesus is taking his own medicine. He's following his own teaching, this rabbi. He is praying, Father, if it's not possible, if it's your will, then I want to line up with your will. May your will be done. And he makes this incredible choice that turns history and makes an eternity of difference for every single one of us. But we need to understand this cup of suffering that he's speaking about. It's the cup of suffering or God's wrath that Isaiah prophesied about right back in Isaiah 51. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. I'm going to go to Isaiah 51, verse 17, and then verses 21 to 23. Let me set the context while you're turning to Isaiah 51, 17. The context is that Isaiah is one of the great prophets of God, along with Jeremiah, the other prophets, and the minor prophets, who continually tried to bring God's people back to God and to the will of God. But actually it cost them. They were stoned, tortured sometimes, or even put to death. And the people continued to turn their backs on God. And what the prophets would do is call them back. And sometimes when God would just stand back, as a parent has to do, when a child wants their own way, as the children of Israel rebelled and went against other gods, so the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God swept in. The warriors and the kings from lands around them came in and their gods, their false gods, triumphed. And they were putting the people of God to all kinds of pain. And here in Isaiah, the prophet explains it, Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, and rise up, O Jerusalem. You who've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who've drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. And then we go to verse 21. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one. Here's a loving father saying it's going to be different. Hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. I've taken it out of your hand. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. He gives them a promise. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who sent to you. Fall prostrate that we may walk over you. And you make your back like the ground, like a street to be walked over. God is saying, look, the enemies have come in. And in a sense, as I stood back, that's, that's my wrath that I warned you about. That's my discipline. But I love you and I don't want you to ever have to drink from that cup again. This is the cup that Jesus is now saying. God the Father is in Christ in that garden. And Jesus is saying, if it's your will, Father, then your will be done. I will drink that cup. Tomorrow on that cross, I will drink that cup. Because of our love for our people, I will take upon myself the sins and the rebellions of the whole world. I know that our people were taught to sacrifice lambs and for the high priest to lay his hands upon a scapegoat and let the scapegoat go into the wilderness to take an unblemished, spotless lamb and sacrifice it and shed its blood. But I also know that my cousin John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is going to take every single one of those sacrificial animals' sacrifice and take it in a sense upon himself. All the sins of the past, all the rebellion of the past, all the sins of the present and all the sins of the future. 
And when two of his disciples had come to him earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, with their mother, a good Jewish mum wanting the best for her boys. Can James and John sit on your right and on your left? Jesus says to them, Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, We can. And by the way, they did. They were martyrs. But Jesus is in Gethsemane, wrestling and battling in prayer that he'll have the courage to drink this cup because of God's love for mankind. He faces the past and the judgment of sin as Jesus, the Son of God. The judgment of sin comes through Jesus, the Son of God. Now, before we turn to Romans 8, 1 to 4, let me tell you, this is not a story as it's been written of cosmic child abuse. God is Abba, Father. He loves His Son. He is in Christ on that cross Himself in some mysterious and profound way. But sin is sin and it has to be judged because God is a holy God. And His heart is broken because He's separated from humanity, from mankind. And He wants them to be at one with Him. So the atonement happens. And on the Day of Atonement, Jews still at Yom Kippur celebrate the Day of At-One-Ment where God is made at one with man again through the sacrificial bloodshedding of animals, but no, once and for all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 8, 1 to 4. There's some deep stuff today, but bear with it. Stick with it. In Romans 8 and 1 to 4, the great apostle writes to Romans who are facing sacrificial deaths themselves, Christians in Rome. He says in Romans 8, therefore, there's now condemn, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, if you come here with a heavy load that Zoe spoke about today, and the heavy load is not the pressure of your family or your financial position or some sickness or some troubled relationship, your heavy load is a sin that you cannot break, then come to God, seek His forgiveness, put it behind you, and know this, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 2 of Romans 8. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, the commandments and the sacrifice of animals was powerless to do this, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature of human beings, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Thank God if you have the Spirit, you're a child of God. And by the Spirit you cry, Daddy, Daddy who loves you. Jesus faced this choice though. Whatever your theories of the atonement, and there are many different theories, not just that one that Jesus took our place called substitutionary atonement. There are many others. But Jesus had to face the choice here. He had a choice to make. Was he willing to be the Lamb of God? Was he willing to go to that cross? And he makes the choice, yes, for the Father, yet not my will but your will be done. But Jesus made that choice for you and for me. I know it's a cliché. Clichés are axioms that get repeated over and over and over. 
But if you ask God, how much does he love you? He's going to say this much. Because in Jesus, he opened up his arms and he died. That's how precious you are. That's how much God loves you. That much. Let me put it this way. He's dealt with our past and he walks with us in the present. And he walks with us into a secure future that is made possible by the choice he made in Gethsemane. Pause. You're facing a choice today. I wonder if any of you have got a choice to make. I wonder if any of you are a bit anguished about that choice. I wonder if any of you have been praying and it just seems as if God's not giving you guidance and maybe it's because of the fear of the decision and what if it goes wrong. There is a choice to be made. Well, Jesus can identify with you and he's with you in it. The second thing that Jesus faced is not only the the past and the agony of the past, he's facing the present and the anguish in this present. Anguish of soul. Just listen to these verses again in Matthew 26 to understand the anguish of Jesus' soul. It's as if there's a dark cloud around him. Maybe almost like a specter in the distance, some force of evil that is tempting him, trying to divert him, trying to crush him in the place of Gethsemane called the oil press. He experiences anguish of soul to such an extent that actually he's sweating blood. Verses 37 to 38 capture it. Let me read it. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. These are his closest friends. James and John and Peter. Took them along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, listen to this. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That's where Luke 22 and verse 44 says anguish. He's in anguish of soul. His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow today. Anyone been there? Anyone there at the moment? And get some prayer today. Because God loves you. And he has a different way. If you are there, then almost certainly you'll feel like Jesus felt in Gethsemane, afraid and alone. Verse 38, we read again that he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, but he's asked his disciples to keep watch with him. But by the time we come to verse 40, he returns to his disciples and it says he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. And then he gives a, a phrase that is common in our language. Join in if you know it. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. It's so true, isn't it? We want to do something, but we can't do it. Now, in case we become too hard on these people, we need to know that in Luke's account, it says that they are exhausted through sorrow. He's told them at the Last Supper, not only that he's going to die, they're going to be like orphans, it seems, even though he's promised them another counselor, a comforter to be with them. They don't quite get that. Their rabbi, their Lord and their master is going to be taken from them and crucified. They're in anguish themselves. And then, worse than that, he's told them they're going to betray him. It's hard to sleep sometimes when you're exhausted. It's hard to sleep sometimes when you're full of sorrow. But when the sleep comes, it's a relief, at least for a little while, isn't it? 
Jesus is experiencing loneliness, isolation, feelings of abandonment. And it's going to get worse because when we get to Luke 26, 47 to 49, while he's still speaking to them even, right after this account here, Judas, one of the twelve, arrives and with him, with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the end of the law and the uh, elders of the people, the betrayer arranged a signal with them and he kisses Jesus. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And in Luke's account, we simply read in Luke 22, verse 48, that Jesus says, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? They all go. Judas kisses him. They all scatter after the scuffle where Peter chops someone's ear off and Jesus heals it. There's this incredible miracle, but nevertheless they are terrified and they just run like frightened rabbits. One of them leaves naked because somebody grabs him and he leaves his clothes behind. What can we learn about prayer here? Well, I want to tell you what we can learn about prayer that when we're praying, sometimes we're going to get tempted because when we are weak and when we're vulnerable and when we're maybe even doubting, in verse 41, when Jesus has told them to watch and pray, Jesus says to them, you haven't, you've fallen asleep because the spirit is willing but the body's weak. We press on. But know this, a different scholar, Church of England scholar this time, Michael Green, In his commentary, The Message of Matthew from the Bible Speaks Today series, he says, the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane shows that we can be close to God. We can live a holy life. We can pray with faith and earnestness and expectancy and yet not get what we've asked for. Ever done that? It's a profound mystery, says Michael Green before which we must bow. And some of us don't want to bow, we want to rail, we want to go, why God? And Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the conclusion in our humanity we can come to. Well, God's not there, or he doesn't care. No. Prayer is not about manipulating God. Prayer is about seeking God's will for our life. And Jesus, as he sought his Father's will, he knew that it was his Father's will, yes, to go through the agony of the cross. He had to trust his Father for the glory of the resurrection, but that brings me to some great news. Because Jesus didn't just consider the past and its agony, or the present and its anguish. Jesus faced the future and the accomplishment that he was going to enjoy, which had an impact on the whole of human history and upon your life and my life. You see, when you align your will up with the will of God, however challenging that that might be, when you align your will up with the will of God, that is the only best and safe place to be on planet Earth. Because if we walk in the will of God, we will walk on into eternity in a heaven, yes, which Becky told us about, but also when we put our hand into the hand of Jesus, not just a heaven, but a whole new heaven and a new earth. More paradise, more joy than any of us could imagine. So Jesus faces the task to be accomplished. And in John 19 and verse 30 on the cross, you might remember that Jesus in his dying breath cries out, it is finished. And some people have said, was he crying, I'm finished? No. In the Greek, tetelestai, he's crying, it is accomplished. It's done. 
My job here on earth is done. I've made a way home to the Father. Aren't you glad? Jesus has made a way home to the Father. It's accomplished. He faced the task. He accepted the will of God. And because of that, you and I have a way home to the Father. As I begin to draw to a close, I just want to talk about two gardens and two Adams. Two gardens. Gethsemane is one of them. When you think of Adam and a garden, what's the name of the garden you think of? Eden. So let's think of two gardens and two Adams, because in Eden, what happened is Adam, the son of God, made from the dust of the earth, whether you take that symbolically or literally, there is a person who rebels against the will of God, who sins, who does the one thing that God tells him not to do. He eats from the fruit of a tree. Every other tree he can eat from. But God has said, just don't eat from that one. And he does. And at that moment, it's like a spanner going to the works of a delicate machine. It's like the beauty and the magnificence of creation. As theologians call it, it falls. Sin gets into the world and stuffs it up. A less precise theological statement. It stuffs it up. That's what happened in Eden. But in Gethsemane, the second Adam puts it right. Listen to Romans again, this time chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul captures this profound and deep truth. I hope I can make it as clear as is possible for us. Romans 5, 12 to 17. In NIV, the heading is death through Adam, life through Christ. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in the same way death came to all men and women, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So Adam's a pattern of someone to come. Verse 15 of Romans 5. But the gift is not like the trespass, not like the sin. For if the many died by the trespass, the sin of the one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment following one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For it's by trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? In plain English, when Adam sinned, all his offspring, the whole of humanity, were wrapped up in this rebellion and this sin. And Satan held sway over them. And the world fell from its beauty of paradise to the chaos that it's now in. And we see it continuing. But when the second Adam, Jesus, comes, he comes and he completely chooses not in a garden to disobey his heavenly Father. He totally, utterly chooses, not my will, but your will be done in a garden called Gethsemane. 
And because of that choice that Jesus made in that garden, I don't know if everyone here is a Christian today, but I, I just want to tell everyone here, whether you're a Christian today or not, that this isn't pie in the sky when you die. There is a life beyond this life, beyond heaven, in a new earth, that is unutterably, amazingly wonderful, where there is no sin, no sickness, no Satan, no suffering, no heavy loads, no burdens, one humanity, whatever color, with one creed, loving each other, and that is something to die for. I want to talk about the fact that our future is safe in his hands. That our future is totally safe in his hands. I don't have time to read the whole of Matthew 26, 62 to 68. I'll just read verse 64, but here's the scene. Jesus is arrested now. He's in front of Caiaphas. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. They're cooking it up. They're trying to trap him so they can crucify him because they're the religious right wing and they hate this Jesus. They asked him directly, does Caiaphas, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, yes. And at last they've got enough evidence. He tears his robes. They are now set to have Jesus killed. In this quango of a trial, they take him to Pilate. They cook up a plan that Jesus is into sedition against Caesar. And they demand that he be crucified and they stir up the crowd. And that's what's going to happen. But Jesus says in response to Caiaphas, verse 64 of Matthew 26, In the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now and is raising his nail-pierced hands in prayer for you and me. So your future and my future, if you put your hand into the hand of Jesus, is safe in his hands. Becky does it again with her children's talk. One verse left. Verse 46. Some so-called scholars have utterly misinterpreted and misconstrued verse 46 of this Gethsemane story in Matthew 26. Jesus comes to the disciples. He asks them if they're still sleeping and resting. He tells them that the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And in verse 46 he says this, Rise, let's go, here comes my betrayer. And some interpreters have said, that was Jesus trying to make a quick exit. That was Jesus telling him, come on, quick, let's escape. No way! He's made the choice. He's been strengthened by an angel. He's sweat blood. And now what he says is, rise, let us go. With courage, with confidence to confront the powers of evil and darkness. Jesus says, rise, let us go. He rose from his knees. He rose from being prostrated on his face to go into battle against sin and Satan and sickness, to stride forward towards the cross, to be beaten and bloodied and crucified, but to rise fully overcoming darkness, death, and destruction through the glorious resurrection. So let's rise. 